This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Greg Hoffman. Greg spent many years in one of the coolest jobs in the world as Chief Marketing Officer for Nike. He's also the author of a new book about his experiences, Emotion by Design. In this episode, we talk about some of the marketing campaigns that took Nike to another level, the importance of emotion and empathy in business, why diversity increases productivity, and at the end, he shares a bit about finding his birth parents just last year. This is Greg Hoffman. So Greg Hoffman, welcome to Beyond Busy. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And um, we were just talking off air there that um, you're, I'm catching you the day before your business, la- your book launches in the US and then obviously is going to launch um, in the UK shortly after that. So I guess you are pretty busy right now. That's right, but it's a good kind of busy, right? So keeps you energized and uh, I couldn't be more happy to uh, share these thoughts and this methodology with the world. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, I said so the book is called Emotion by Design. Um, so um, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll, you'll get a little picture of the book cover there. So Emotion by Design, creative leadership lessons from a lifetime at Nike. So I'm in I'm in the UK. So my first question is, is it is a really frivolous first question, right? Which is, um, uh, is it wrong to say Nike? Because I grew up calling it Nike. Am I wrong? It is Nike, but at some point a brand belongs to the people. So how you choose to say it is up to you. And I think that's perfectly fine. And I'm not going to stand in the way of that. So, um, I, Do you know part of the reason I wanted to ask you that question is that um, just have, having read the book, I actually thought you might have something really interesting to say about it rather than just saying, no, we pronounce it Nike. <laughs> um, yeah, just because well, I think there is truth is, as kids growing up in the, I don't want to date myself, but I will, uh, certainly in the late 70s, early 80s, in the US, a lot of people said Nike. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so there you go. Um, One of the reasons it's interesting is that you talk a lot in the book about uh, the emotional connection that brands have. And so with Nike, I mean, it felt really romantic, that first part of the book where you're talking about your own first interactions with the brand and then that kind of realization that there was something really um really creative in the design process of of those ads do you want to just tell us that story of how did you first come across um nike as a brand and then that first opportunity to get involved and actually work for the company yeah absolutely and you know as a kid having two dominant passions you know art and sport uh, it, at that point in my life. And so obviously when I saw this brand able to intersect these two passions, um, it was a revelation for me. And so really it started first with product, you know, my first Nike shoe was an air force one high, 
that I had as a freshman uh, in, in high school. But really, when I started to feel these, you know, back to this idea of stirring emotion, you know, in terms of how the brand tells stories, it was really the 1984 Olympics. I was a huge, I was a long jumper. So um, I was a huge Carl Lewis uh, fan at the time. And here was this brand um, doing this I Love LA commercial because it was the LA Olympics. And here's Randy Newman, the singer, driving around in a convertible. And as he's going through town, he's seeing, you know, Carl Lewis is coming out of frame and into the frame, jumping onto the sand in Santa Monica. You have other athletes. And I was just blown away. And that was really that start of, okay, this is something greater than just products, right? Um, this is kind of a state of mind um, or a way one would live their life, right? And this is even before just do it. So that was kind of that early point. And then obviously the introduction of just do it in, in 1988, you know, with the Bo Nose ad, Bo Jackson playing multiple sports, um, that just sealed the deal for me. And then finally, you know, in college, um, I had the Michael Jordan wings poster on my wall, right? With his arms outstretched and a William Blake quote underneath that said, you know, no bird soars too high if they soar with their own wings. So that's quite powerful. But I'll have you know, even a year before I arrived at Nike, I didn't even know that Nike was in Portland, Oregon. You know, I'm growing up in the middle of America in Minnesota. So that I, I had grasped the concept of how a brand can play a deeper role in a person's life, but I didn't put it together that there was an actual department working together to create these emotions, right? So just a little background on that journey. And like when you first got there, so you talk about um, the year was 1992. And it's an interesting era for me because it's probably like the first era that I really remember, you know, kind of watching sports. So you had like the Summer Olympics with the Dream Team. You had Andre Agassi at Wimbledon. And there was the, like this huge, I remember really vividly the um, the controversy that happened the year before when Andre Agassi was at Wimbledon and he was wearing too many colors on his outfits and the Wimbledon hierarchy were trying to make him wear all white. So the next year, what does he do? Like turns up in complete all white with just the, the Nike logo on. So like it was, a, it was a really, and then there's a Derek Redmond story, which maybe you can um, tell, but it was like, it was a really incredible um, sort of period of time, that kind of early nineties era in terms of just what was going on in music and fashion and sport. Like everything seemed to be very exciting at that time. No, no question. Uh, absolutely. It was a summer of sport to, to remember. And uh, for someone like myself, who had such a, a big affinity for, for Michael Jordan, and the fact that not only did he win the NBA championship that summer against, you know, the Portland Trailblazers, you know, the beloved team of the city that I was going to work at. And then to follow that up for the first time, professional uh, NBA athletes could play in the Olympics, which essentially was the formation of the first dream team. And, you know, I have a, I have a chapter later on in the book about creating a, a, a creative dream team. Right. Um, but it really kind of comes from that idea of bringing together the best players, uh, in the world onto one team. And how do you create the type of chemistry that's needed to create 
uh, great work and great wins. But, you know, so yes, it was just a magical um, summer and certainly uh, that swoosh, you know, seeing it for the first time on a, a cap uh, that Agassi was was wearing, uh, you know, um, actually uh, a couple years later would lead to the brand um, making the decision to go swoosh only as its brand trademark. Because up until that time, it was only on product that you saw the swoosh. But in communication and in the stores and on posters, it was still the swoosh with Nike Futura Bowl typeface above it that said Nike. So just a quick story there in terms of how a brand transitioned and simplified its brand, the core of its brand identity. And the rest is history from there. Yeah. And just to ask a little follow up to that. So um, the thing with Derek Redmond feels quite similar. Do you want to just tell the story of Derek Redmond for those that don't remember? Yeah, I, it's just a, a, you know, the embodiment of of just do it to me and derek redmond was a sprinter and he was actually not a nike athlete right um but derek redmond um as he turned the corner uh in his his race in front of millions of of people you know around the world watching this um he pulled up and i believe he pulled his hamstring uh if if i recall and um at first kind of came to a, a, a stop just a slight walk but his father came out of the stands and his father was actually wearing a, a, a just do it cap and came up to him, put his arm uh, around his shoulder and walked him all the way to the finish line. And it's one of those moments that brings tears to your eyes because there's you, you, you can feel um, the journey that the athletes taken and how that's in some ways taken away from him. But at the same time, between the two of them, they're giving so much to the world in that moment, right? You talk about this idea of empathy and it's brought to life before your very eyes. And it was just one of those unique moments that just reinforced the idea of defying convention and just doing it um, no matter what the circumstances you know, so, um, yeah, it really stands out for me as as a a natural moment that happened um, that that captivated a lot of attention at the time. Yeah. And I suppose my curiosity with that was. So there's that moment, there's the Agassi thing, which, you know, again, in some ways kind of feels like this just this this moment that just happens and it sort of captures the imagination and like. That one obviously feels a bit more designed than Derek Redmond, but there's a there's an element of kind of accident to all of it, isn't there? Where you have to work out and see which things are going to really strike people at the heart and which things are not. So, like, would you say that part of the creative process is to just do lots of those things and see what sticks, or is there like a bit more of a science to to you know how to engineer those kind of moments that are going to really create connection? Well, I think you it's yes, does the you know, there's moments that are not in con your control, obviously, um, that um, are and sometimes we call those happy accidents. Um, but as a team and an individual, you have to be prepared uh, for those moments as well. Um, and um, you have to have the level of curiosity and, you know, 
vision for what's happening uh, in the outside world um, so that um, when that moment happens, um, you're, you're ready to leverage that. And back to this idea of sport, there is, there is always a calendar of sport moments that's happening. And so part of, part of um, creativity is, you know, to your point, um, planning for those moments and planning for a win. Don't wait for the win to happen, right? Because that is not a recipe for success. And so oftentimes, um, I certainly, with the teams that I had the privilege of leading, um, we would create bodies of work. And essentially, you're predicting how certain um, events and moments might happen or when someone might become the leading goal scorer or when another team might advance to the next round of a particular tournament. So, um, you know, you, you, you can't be complacent. Um, complacency is the enemy of creativity, in my opinion. And as soon as we, we stop being curious and start getting comfortable, your creativity starts to atrophy. And so I think that's very important for, for creatives uh, and marketers of all ages to, to, to continue to find ways to um, keep themselves energized and motivated in a world that, quite frankly, is moving far faster now than it was, to your point, back in 1992. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, isn't it, to sort of think back now to to all the other things in terms of, you know, what the world looked like around those sporting events compared to, you know, the, the next World Cup. Um, let's think about some of the lessons from the book then. So um, one of the ones that really struck me, and partly because I'm writing this book about kindness and leadership at the moment, was around empathy. And um, there's a lovely line in the book where you say the first element of every inspiring idea comes from empathy. What did you mean by that? Well, if you think about whether you're designing a product or whether you're concepting uh, a campaign or, or a piece of communication or a story, um, it's only going to be as strong as the insight or truth that you start with. And when you start a process, you're, you're only going off of assumptions and observations, right? Basically what everyone else already sees. And that's why when I think of empathy, you know, the principle I like to use is this idea of see what others see, find what others don't. And I think creative people inherently have this gift because it's part of the creative process. So at the beginning, are you digging deep? Um, are you peeling back the layers to get to something that's quite sharp as an insight and revealing that? So then the process becomes, how do you reveal that in the most profound way um, to move people? And I'll give you a quick example that I think would that a lot of um, the listeners could relate to. Um, there was a pretty historic Nike campaign that, again, I had the privilege of, of working on, which was Find Your Greatness um, back in 2012 for the L London Olympics is when that launched. And imagine how powerful it was when we kicked that process off, when a creative director from the agency, Wyden and Kennedy, came into the room and said, did you know that there are 25 other cities and towns around the world called London? And within those towns, large and small, there's other people having their own Olympics 
and trying to achieve their potential as athletes and reach their dreams. That's quite powerful as a creative team when someone started with empathy, went deep, did the research, was curious, and kind of not only, it's like, if you keep that to yourself, then you're not lifting the entire team. So I think the other part of empathy is not only with your subject, whether it's an individual, a community, or a, a city, but also for your own team in terms of how you share and inspire them. And when you get an entire team um, exercising and strengthening their empathy, I think the creative output is just um, has, has so much more potential. Yeah, and there's something else that you said as well in the book, which um, I didn't write down, so I'm going to attempt to paraphrase, but it's something like, don't try and tell the story of the brand about the brand, but use the brand to tell a story about the person who's consuming the brand. So that feels like a really important part of Nike's success, right? Is like it it leads people to feel inspired about themselves and to express their sort of ownership of the brand in a really different way, which is why it becomes this huge thing for, you know, music culture as well as just in sport and so on. Like that feels like a really hard thing to do though. So like, how did that, can you tell tell a bit more of a story about how did that um, approach start at Nike? And also like for someone listening to this, you know, even if you don't work in marketing, like how can you kind of use some of those techniques to to really benefit your own work? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and great point, you know, um, and I, I have no problem admitting because that the early parts of my career and oftentimes when you think of branding and brand management, so much of it is about how you want the consumer and the audience to feel about your brand, right? In some ways, it's very one way. You're trying to create an impression in their mind of your brand and your brand image, but I think the great brands, the ones that truly transcend, kind of move into a place where they spend just as much time thinking about how they want people to feel about themselves when they interact with your brand. And in turn, their ability to feel empowered to reach their dreams and potential. And so if you as a team, I don't care if you're a business of, of six people or 600, if you can make that transition and it really kind of moves you from kind of being, um, uh, you know, marketing to serving um, and this idea of, of being with people for the long term, not just for the moment. Right. Um, like you're a brand that is about progression. You know, this idea of we're going to we're here to have a relationship and help you on your journey, just like we help athletes on the pitch or the track or the court. So I think part of it, um, Graham, is, is it always starts with the mindset. How, how are we playing the game? And we're going to be, um, we're certainly going to spend time um, shaping the brand in ways that, you know, you know, position our brand in the world within our category in a way that's distinct and create separation from the competition. We know that that's a dominant part of what branding is. At the same time, you back to this idea of emotion by design, you have to stir those levels of emotion 
and resonate in a deeper way in people's lives so you can help them and empower them more so than just being in a relationship that quite frankly is is transactionary and i guess it's sort of the it's the hero's journey equivalent thing of um you're yoda not luke skywalker right like you're there as the the guide to show them what they're doing rather than to be the hero the whole time that that is correct and it's it's uh it's a again it's a conversation it's not a broadcast um and 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 even better when you get to a point where it's it's not only a conversation between the brand and the audience, but the audience then it can because as I said in, in the book, you know, at some point the stories you tell no longer belong only to you as a brand. They get passed down and into culture, if you will, and reinterpreted for um every generation. And I think that's the beauty of just do it, just do it. It's rare that not only a slogan, but um, a, a way of communicating just do it through stories and advertising over the years has appealed to multiple generations. It's almost this, you know, obviously sport like music has the power to unify people, you know, um, no matter how different they are. Um, and I think the way that Just Do It is brought into the world every single year um, accomplishes that uh, in a very inspiring way. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of thinking in my head about um, my own company and some of the ways that we, we can employ some of those, those techniques in our own marketing. Um, there's quite a lot in the book um, that really speaks to sort of lessons around leadership rather than just around branding. So I'd just love to talk about some of those. Um, and uh, I love the bit where you talk about, uh, you sort of allude to the Apple, here's to the crazy ones campaign um, and talk about the the real need for having, surrounding yourself with visionaries, making it okay for visionaries to be part of your culture. But then there's this bit that um, sort of counters it, which says, let the quiet ones speak the loudest. Do you want to just talk about that? Well, yeah, you know, and, and certainly when I, my retirement speech, if you will, uh, at Nike two years ago, I, what I asked the, the folks that were gathered in the room is to, to really three communities that I had an affinity for, but I also saw myself within those groups. You know, the first, of course, is those those daydreamers if you you know the right brain thinkers and the second group are the the quiet ones the introverts who oftentimes um get excluded um because they're not exercising their voice loud enough in the moment and my point to the group is that oftentimes you're you're missing out on the stories that they have to tell and um you're talking about um, individuals that oftentimes want some time to process what they're hearing. And certainly in the creative arena, imagine the power of allowing individuals the time to go back, think about what they heard, um, synthesize that, and come back in a way, sometimes being able to visualize that and, and surprise um, the, the 
greater team and organization in a way that creates momentum and delivers new innovation and new ideas. But oftentimes they're excluded or ignored because just having a loud voice doesn't mean it's right. Okay. And I just think oftentimes brands are missing out um, when oftentimes the daydreamers are a bit difficult to work with. Oftentimes introverts are a little bit hard to interpret, right? Like, are you in the game or not? They just might be a little bit uncomfortable, right? And then of course, um, diverse voices and um, those that quite frankly have had numerous barriers or bias to work through uh, to be in the room. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, it took a long time for me um, over the years to find my voice because so much of my early career was speaking through my work, right? And, and that's how I, was, how I was able to contribute. And it was only when I started to manage teams and those teams grew, I really had to figure out how I was going to still stay true to who I was, you know? Um, and at the same time, because oftentimes you're working within a highly competitive business environment, right? Um, you're working around um, extroverts, right? Who, who it comes very easy um, to speak in the moment. And, um, and so um, I would say to anybody, it's a journey and you need to, um, it's something that requires um, commitment and work, but you should never, um, you know, be someone you're not, right? And so it does take a management team, though, to recognize the power of the quiet voices, um, certainly in the field of innovation and creativity. Um, you are leaving a massive business advantage on the table if you are not mm. taking advantage of those voices. Yeah, and like you say, um, it's also the introverts are often the ones who are the reflective thinkers. And so they're the ones who they go away and they distill everything and then they they come back and reflect it back to you in, in maybe a different way. And that requires, like, you've got, you've got to listen and pr more proactively listen. But also it requires a bit more time as well, right? Because, you know, you need that time to reflect. And in, in an organization that's loud and fast paced, like, how do you do that? What did you learn in terms of managing people that allowed you to, you know, to really um, not leave those talents on the table? Yeah, well, one of the things I, I, since I got to Nike, I believed in this idea of just like with sports, I think the most dominant teams have two traits that are really prevalent within their offense. And it's speed and agility. The agility part we talked about, right? Anticipating what might happen and being able to change direction in the moment and deliver that win, if you will. The speed is this idea of being able to um, visualize and prototype ideas with great speed. Um, and now more than ever, that's really important considering how fast everything is moving. And so early on, myself and, and the teams um, I led, um, our role in a lot of those meetings was to take what we heard but come back because how many times have you been in a conversation and said, you know, that idea we talked about three months ago, whatever happened to that? And people say, oh, you know, I'm not sure. It's like, I guess uh, we got too busy. And then a year later, someone's like, well, what happened to the idea? So 
I wanted to eliminate that, right? And so our role oftentimes was to participate in those conversations, but go back, visualize the end in mind. What's that vision look like? Come back to the team and create this kind of vivid expression of what was discussed and then and then prototype it, take it to market and test it. And so over time, then what starts to happen is those invitations by the teammates start coming more frequently because everyone sees the power of, okay, I get it. I see that there's certain individuals that need to just soak up what's going on in the moment. They go back, reflect on that, as you said, and then use the power of design thinking and creativity to come back and rally everybody is quite powerful. That's why I have that kind of um, that principle of what's the movie poster of the idea. Because if you think of a movie poster, you know, you need to get the concept. Um, it needs to hook you in that moment. And so oftentimes that's that's what we were trying to do. And what it did is it shifted the culture of recognizing that a lot of folks just process information in a different way, maybe at a different speed, but are equally, if not more important within the process of, you know, building new ideas and taking them to market. So that's just kind of one way um, teams can think about uh, how to how to unlock those those different uh, communities within your brand. Hmm. And just to just develop that idea around managing teams and leading teams. So you touched on diversity a few minutes ago. And so just wanted to talk about that. So you took in the book about the idea of diversity is oxygen. And I know you had a lot of um, very leading roles within Nike in terms of advising the black community of workers within Nike as well. So do you want to just start with them? Um, just want to ask you a couple of questions on that theme. Let's just start with just diversity in general. What what do you think is the main, uh, you know, kind of uh, benefit of, of diversity? Like why why do you see that diversity is oxygen? Different life uh, experiences and perspectives in the room coming together has a greater probability of leading to something that is not only unique to the market conceptually, but will ultimately provide access and opportunity to communities that quite frankly, don't have that access. And so it works both ways. Not only do you uh, have a greater chance of having the type of dialogue and conversation and teamwork between individuals within a diverse team, um, but you have a greater chance of broadening um, the consumers and the audience that you serve. So it's also a huge business advantage because it leads to business growth. And, you know, for me, as, as someone who grew up as mixed race, you know, half black, half white, I was also adopted into a white family and I grew up in a white school system and had quite a bit of adversity within that. Um, but what it did do is it, 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 it just uh, motivated me um, to use my platform and position at any point within my career to help those that maybe had the same experience um, and make sure that, you know, the teams that I led 
um, were a mirror or a reflection of the audiences that we were either serving or we needed to serve and provide access to. Yeah. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? When you, so I'm a passionate believer in, in diversity, just from a, just from the point of view of that's a, the right thing to do and social justice. But also when you think about it from the point of view of the results that you get, you know, it's like, like uh, I read a really interesting thing with Warren Buffett talking about um, feminism a few years ago, where he basically said, um, you know, we've got, you know, good feminism is actually about saying, well, let's utilize all the best skills that we have. And if you, if you're not actually uh, involving um, women in some of the top leadership positions, well, you've just got 50% of the population not contributing as much as they could do. And that's just not good business sense sort of thing. So I think there's something really, um, uh, something really important in, in making that argument, isn't there to say that actually it's, um, it is important for social justice, but it's also really good for creativity and, productivity and getting results. You're exactly right. And that's why it was really important for me to actually show versus just tell to ensure that I was using my own journey and my own outlook at the world, um, but also demonstrate it through um, some iconic uh, campaigns, products and and experiences, Um, because oftentimes um, diversity is just looked at by the numbers, right? And um, you could have a diverse team, but you haven't unlocked the potential of that team because the whole point is to this idea of what I call um, living the personal in the professional, allowing the individual experience and perspective of those diverse individuals um, to 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 um come out within the the business and brand and creative process, right? And that's where you see some of those examples of the type of work that it leads to um, and the type of impact it not only has um, uh, in, in people's lives, but also in culture. And that's that idea of, you know, being able to, to spark a movement, right? And, and have the type of meaning in culture and in people's um, lives where they feel they want to collectively come together uh, to change the world for the better. And you talk um, early on in the book about the culture at Nike um, and the three words that use is collaboration, inclusion, and creativity. And it feels like all of those in their own ways are, are really important for what we're talking about. So what are some of the ways that Nike would build that culture? Like what are some of the particular things that if you're a manager working in a really different organization, what can you learn from how Nike does collaboration and inclusion and creativity? Well, I like, I talk a lot about this idea of, of breaking people out of their silos. I think it's really, really important. And even if you're, you, you just try this as a project, um, is to get everyone to in some ways virtually or physically sit together, um, regardless of what their uh, department or division is responsible for. Um, And I do use uh, an example in the book and one I used with uh, my team many, many many times is the example of FC Barcelona and their approach to football through this idea of tiki-taka. And if you think about that, 
it's it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, it's this idea of, of of a lot of these short passes. You know, first being unselfish and passing the ball as a as a teammate, and at the same time making sure you're always moving and in position um, with with everyone else. And I think that's where we um, had a lot of uh, success in this idea of radical creative collaboration, where everyone is aware of what their position is, um, but you know, they also have the opportunity to, there's room for improv, you know, there's room for spontaneity, that you have enough structure um, and, and enough um, coaching where people know where they need to be, but they also have the opportunity to bring back to, to the point of, of, of diversity, bring some of themselves into that process as well. And so that's why I say often, you know, it's like pass the ball and shorten the passes. Because if you're in a, 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 a culture of collaboration where there's a lot of um, waiting for approval, waiting for permission, um, long handoffs, um, sometimes days, right? Versus this synchronicity and this chemistry where people are moving around the field together. I think it, it's important sometimes for, for coaches and managers to use metaphors or symbols to get their um, team in the right place. And the other, um, just to kind of keep going, is the other example I use a lot is the Brazil national team. And it's certainly a team that I had, I got to work with over almost three decades, right? And what I was always struck by Brazil um, through their style of play, Jenga, um, is um, it really was this, this um, playbook where the individual was celebrated. What made them unique was celebrated. And, and, and Graham, even if you were, even if Brazil was frustrating you as a fan for 90 minutes, at one point within that game, there would be something brilliant. It's so know, true. Because yeah. that, was, that was their point. They played beautifully yeah. and won at the same time. And I think there's a lot of um, parallels to the creative process within mm. that. If it's too rigid and there's too much structure, people can't create beautifully. They yeah. can't. They can't flex and improv uh, within that. Yeah, and I love those two ideas sitting alongside. So the the Barcelona tiki taka is, you know, it's very team orientated. And I love that bit in there of, um, you know, it's about the awareness of where everybody else is and what's ev what everybody else is doing. I think that's such an important thing in management that you know we often lose sight of in leadership roles because we've got our own bit to do, right? And so we're not having that awareness of what's happening elsewhere. And then, yeah, almost like the Brazilian thing feels like the opposite, right? It's like the sort of explode with 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 something really beautiful, and um, you know, and 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 don't apologize for expressing yourself. Um, yeah, I really love that. Um, one of the ideas in the book which really struck me um, is best explained by um, me asking you how many photos have you got on your iCloud account? <laughs> you know, it it isn't. Uh... <laughs> 80,000 range. Okay. Right. <laughs> and no, you know, I'm sure my, my laptop is just dying or my iCloud. I, I, I hope I don't, uh, you know, I don't know how many times I've had to upgrade my storage capacity, <laughs> in my iCloud account. Apple must love you. 
But yeah, tell us about I, that. I think so. <laughs> but 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 here's the deal. I, I talk about that idea of just, you know, if empathy is what finds uh, the insight and the truth, it's inspiration that reveals it, right? It's how you take that truth and express it to the world, whether it is a product or a surface service or, or an experience. Um, and, um, it's so important to get outside yourself, look outside your business sector. I can't emphasize this enough. So much of innovation within storytelling or product design, etc., comes from transference from other, other business sectors. You know, I, the, the great story of Nike air, you know, Nike Air might be the most significant innovation in Nike's history. And that actually came from a NASA engineer, you know, that was, you know, innovating for space exploration, you know, and, and coming up with ways to create astronaut helmets and the idea that he came to Nike with this idea and that Nike embraced that because they understood that you need to um, always be open and seeking inspiration from other areas. And so that led to Nike Air, you know, a revolution in, in footwear uh, cushioning. Um, so there are many other examples with, with, within that as well. But for me, I'm constantly, it's not only about um, finding inspiration and capturing it. I think you need to have a way as a team of, of uh, bringing that inspiration back inside an organization, organizing it in a way where everyone might have access to it, right? And um, it becomes this energy source um, to not only your team, but the entire brand. It's quite powerful if everybody has that, um, you know, that seeking mentality. Um, and I think your probability to find new ideas and introduce new things within the world that your audience lives within goes goes way up. And look, Graham, we're not all um, naturally curious, but I do think curiosity is like a muscle. I think you can uh, exercise that. And I think it's also really important, you know, not only do I have way too many photos and screenshots from my phone of things I think are interesting, whether it's a quote or a piece of architecture or, or a product, et cetera. Um, but I also try lots of new emerging products and services and innovations. Um, and, and by, by using yourself in some ways as a Guinea pig, um, again, just it, it, and, and forcing yourself to do that. So it's like, you're trying new products, you're meeting new people, you're having conversations like we are uh, today, you're going to see different things, um, but but um, make a plan to go out and find it because don't, don't wait for inspiration to just hit you by chance. Yeah, and so you talk in the book about things like, you know, bringing Marie Kondo in um, to talk about the life-changing art of tidying up and... When you're, and having a focus on Japan. And there's a lovely bit where you talk about um, doing these different team building events and making um, uh, advertising with Las Vegas theme and writing children's books in a few hours and stuff like this. So there's like things that you can do on a leadership level, on a team level that brings the outside into the organization. 
But in terms of that sense of um, your own curiosity, so if curiosity is a muscle and someone doesn't feel as curious, and I'm definitely not as curious to have 80,000 um, screenshots. Like, I, That's a good thing. It, it, it's probably <laughs> like the hardest question to ask you because you're obviously naturally curious. And often when someone's really naturally, you know, of a skill set, it's hard for them to, they're like the worst person to teach it. But like, if I said to you, like, what's the, what's the light bulb that goes off in your head when you're on your phone and you think, oh, I must screenshot that. Like, what's, what's, what are the questions? What, what's the inspiration? What's the thought process that's going on in your head when you make that decision to save something and come back to it later? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's not, it's twofold. Sometimes it may relate to something that I'm working on. You know, I work with startups today. I sit on a few of those boards. I'm, I'm very aware of what we're pursuing to put out into the world. And so I might be looking at, you know, scrolling through my phone, looking at what um, a different brand has done or uh, a different startup or, or um you know, it might be a cooking show where they've introduced something unique to that. What, whatever it is, um, I I need to. I have the um, uh, this this voice that says you need to log that. You need to capture that. And I'll be honest, um, it's not as organized as I, I would like it to be. And oftentimes, some of it just goes into the air, right? Um, and probably I'll never see it again, but all it takes is one of those, um, points of inspiration. And sometimes in a year, I might, I might find a thousand things in a year that I found interesting person, a place, a thing. Um, all it's going to take is one moment. Um, I, you know, I talk about in the book, um, I took the team to Savile Row. Um, to look at the greatest suit makers on earth, your, your neck of the woods. And um, what we saw there directly inspired a first of its kind, um, you know, sneaker customization shops. And what started as one shop that we tested in New York over the next few years became customization sneaker shops at all of our flagship stores around the world. But it has to start with the fact that we went looking for inspiration and we stepped into these fine tailor shops to see the care and the level of service that they took to create essentially suits that were work of art. And we said, well, what if we created that with sneakers? And we didn't just act again, it gets back to it's seeking inspiration it's asking the question, how does this, how could this relate to what we're trying to pursue? And then finally, not just talking about it, but doing it and having a space that's protected to come up with unique ideas, because look, we're all busy. There is a plan. It's, a, it's, this is business and it's work. And we come to work to execute the business at hand, but on the way to delivering that plan, I think it's really important for managers and coaches to, to ensure that there's space, whether it's once a month, once a quarter, or once a year, where the team feels motivated and, quite frankly, accountable to deliver ideas that aren't necessarily on the brief. 
Because look, Graham, if if all we're doing is waiting for someone to tell us what to do, how, how are we going to um, then then we're not, um, I think, exercising some of the inherent traits that we have locked up within us. Sometimes we just don't know that we can be more empathetic, more curious or more fearless because we haven't been asked or allowed to exercise those traits. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, there's something in there about space, which maybe just segues us on to um, the last question I'll ask you. So the book is Emotion by Design um, and yeah, just full of just some really great stories. I didn't get to talk to you about LeBron James. I really wanted to uh, tell that story. Uh, But the final question, I, I read that you've, so you said before that you were adopted into a white family and then um, I read that you've just recently in the last year or so found your original birth families. And I just wondered, you've gone through these two, so the whole world's been going through this experience of COVID, right? But you've had these other two really big experiences, um, finding your birth family and then obviously checking out of one of the coolest jobs in one of the coolest brands in the world. Um and I just wondered, as you've had that space over the last couple of years, what what has that space taught you? What are your reflections on the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I had obviously, you know, leaving Nike in February of 2020, had no idea that COVID was about to hit in March, right? And I was preparing to essentially do four things, write, teach, advise, and speak, share share my knowledge, Right. Um, with a focus on bringing more diverse representation into the fields of advertising and marketing and design and innovation, which have kind of lagged behind for quite some time. And then fast forward to March of April, uh, April of 2021, and I was just minding my own business, actually reading, if you can believe it, I was reading the New York Times, you know, the newspapers still work, okay? And yeah, that's when um, I I got a uh, notification from 23andMe from someone that said that I was her uncle. And within an hour after some sleuthing in social media, I realized, no, um, this person is my sister. And, And not only was she my sister, but she also... I started as a graphic designer. And when I looked at her profile, she was a graphic designer. I looked at the profile further. She went to my high school. So that moment led to an incredible like wave of knowledge. And, and this idea that over my lifetime, I had so many questions that, you know, were never answered because you might take it for granted, but why do I look this way I do? Why do I speak this way? Why, why do I have certain characteristics or passions? And so within the last year, so many of those questions have been answered. And I, I uh, go forward with just incredible optimism. Um, you know, even though there's, there's so many, we're, we're, you know, everyone's dealing with a lot. Certainly, you know, two years of covid you have the war going on right now. Everyone's under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of uncertainty. But I also just back to this idea of creativity being able to change the world um, and um, leveraging, you know, the, the the art that we can make together to kind of move this thing forward. I've never been more optimistic about that. 
in my own practice and what I'm doing today professionally, but also with this kind of this confidence I kind of have um, with the knowledge of understanding where I came from through this discovery of these two you know, families and the generations that go back and, and truly finding out where a lot of that creativity comes from. And maybe a lot of that on the other side, where that um, need to want to engage in the world in a way to kind of back to that idea of break, break down barriers and provide access for those that are unseen and unheard. So I, I'm, I'm pretty excited about um, the year ahead. And certainly writing this book is my hope is that it's a catalyst uh, for others to participate in that journey. Yeah, well, it certainly feels like that. And there's so many stories. I mean, it, the, the the word I'm kind of left with is stories. And there's so many stories in this book. And, and, it, and you just describe really practically how those stories have, have changed things in the world. So just want to say thank you for writing it. And how can people, uh, obviously, people can go, go online and buy the book, but where can they connect with you and find out more about what, what you're doing? Yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, of course. Uh, or through, you can kind of see what I'm up to through Instagram at G-H-O-F-F uh, 70. And um, you can go to either one of my websites, um, themodernarena.com, kind of talks about what I'm doing from an advising standpoint. And from a book standpoint, you can check out what's happening at uh, emotion by you know, emotionbydesign.co. So, um, and I'm always happy to engage uh, in conversation and certainly share passion for, you know, this creative space that we all live within. And by the way, I just want to be clear, you know, we all have the capacity to, to be creative within this process, right? Um, because I think sometimes a lot of us think, well, I'm not creative. And that's just not the case when you think about the types of ideas at scale we're trying to put out in the world. We all need to participate in that. For sure. Um, really inspiring. Um, just, Greg, thank you so much for being on Beyond Busy. Thank you, Graham. It's been a pleasure. So there you go, Greg Hoffman. I obviously had to be the Brit asking the question, is it Nike or Nike? That settled the thing for me. Uh, yeah, my childhood uh, pondering is now complete. So there you go. Um, thanks also, as always, to Emily and Pavel, uh, my team on the podcast, for pulling all that together. And Think Productive, our sponsors for the show. What's happening? So I have just finished doing focus groups for my new book, Kind. Um, I had some really great feedback. And maybe the problem with having great feedback is you start to worry if, if the focus group... Uh, team have missed stuff and <laughs> there's going to be stuff that uh, you really wish you'd picked up during the focus group stage and uh, uh, they're all just too positive but um, I'm taking it as a good side it's slightly unnerving when everyone's just like really positive about it um, but also I think I was saying to someone the other day once I've actually finished the book and handed it in I'll be able to actually treat that um, positivity with a bit more excitement and be a little bit more like yeah there's energy around this isn't there like people are into this so I'm really excited to see how that is going to shape out over the next few months. And we're developing a keynote talk around that actually as well. So if you're interested in me coming in to your business to talk about kindful leadership, uh, then drop me a line. It's just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. 
Uh, and the best place to sort of keep in touch with me and what I'm doing and everything else is signing up to my Rev Up for the Week email. So it's just one email, 4.05 p.m. UK time every Sunday night uh, with something positive or productive for the week ahead. And I just also use that as a little way to uh, just tell people what I'm up to and, and just share news and stuff like that. So if you want to sign up for that, if you just go to graymalcott.com forward slash links, and there you'll find um, the link to the Rev Up for the Week email and also just loads of other stuff as well. So grahamalcott.com forward slash links. And I mentioned this on the last podcast. Oh, by the way, thanks to everyone who uh, sent me nice messages about the Monica Aldama cheer episodes, which I really enjoyed doing, really enjoyed binging um, cheer as well on Netflix. I don't binge very much, um, but uh, yeah, really enjoyed that one. Yeah, got some lovely comments. And as I mentioned on that podcast, um, we are planning on making some changes around uh, the podcast and beyond busy and moving to a new format um, probably from September so we're going to do a few more of these have a break for the summer and then come back with something a bit new in September so for right now I'll just say keep subscribed to beyond busy and sign up for the rev up for the week email and then all will be revealed as we um, head into the summer months Uh, but until then We'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode. So uh, I'll see you then. Take care. Bye for now.